Chapter Five of In the Reign of Terror by G. A. Henty. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jean Raimundo. Chapter Five: The Outburst. Monsieur le Marquis, Monsieur du Tillet exclaimed, hurrying into the salon in which the Marquis with his family were sitting on the evening of the twenty-first of August. I hear that it is rumored in the street that all the members of noble families are to be arrested. The room was lit up as if to receive company, but the crowd which had thronged it a fortnight before were gone. The Girondists had first withdrawn, then the nobles had begun to fall off, for it had become dangerous for them to show themselves in the streets, where they were liable to be insulted and attacked by the mob. Moreover, any meeting of known royalists was regarded with suspicion by the authorities, and so gradually the gatherings had become smaller and smaller. The only constant visitor now was the Count de Guizon, but he to-night was absent. The news was not unexpected. The violence of the extremists of the mountain had been increasing daily. At the Cordelier and Jacobin clubs, Danton, Rouspierre, and Marat had thundered nightly their denunciations against the aristocrats, and it was certain that at any moment the order for their arrest might be given. Such bad news had been received of the state of feeling in the provinces that it was felt that it would be more dangerous to send the young ones away than to retain them in Paris, and the Marquise had been a prey to the liveliest anxiety respecting her children. It seemed impossible that there could be any animosity against them, but the blind rage of the mob had risen to such a height that it was impossible to say what might happen. Now that she heard the blow was about to fall, she drew her younger girls instinctively to her, as if to protect them, but no words passed her lips. "'It might still be possible to fly,' Monsieur de Tillet went on. "'We have all the disguises in readiness.' "'A Marquis de Saint-Cour does not fly from the Quenet of Paris,' the Marquis said quietly. "'No, de Tillet. The king and queen are in prison, and it is not for their friends to leave their post here in Paris because danger threatens them. Come when they may, these wretches will find us here, ready for them.' "'But the children, Edouard,' the Marquise murmured. "'I shall stand by my father's side,' Ernest said firmly. I do not doubt your courage, my son. I wish now that I had long ago sent you all across the frontier, but who could have foreseen that the people of France were about to become a horde of wild beasts, animated by hate against all, old and young, in whose veins ran noble blood? However, although it is the duty of your mother and I to stay at our posts, it is our duty also to try and save our house from destruction. Therefore, Dutier, I commit my two sons to your charge. Save them if you can, disguise them as you will, and make for the frontier." Once there you know all the arrangements we have already made. But, father, Ernest remonstrated. I can listen to no argument, Ernest, the Marquis said firmly. In this respect my will is law. I know what your feelings are, but you must set them aside. They must give way to the necessity of saving one of the oldest families of France from perishing. And the girls? the Marquis asked, as Ernest bent his head in sign of obedience to his father's orders. I cannot think, the Marquis said, that they will be included in the order for our arrest. They must go, as arranged, in the morning to the house of our old servant, and remain quietly there, awaiting the course of events. They will pass very well as three of her nieces who have arrived from the country. You had better send a trusty servant to prepare her for their coming. You, Harry, will, of course, accompany my sons. Pardon, Marquis, Harry said quietly. I am firmly resolved to stay in Paris. I may be of assistance to your daughters, and there will be no danger to me in remaining, for I have no noble blood in my veins. Besides, my travelling with Monsieur de Tillet would add to his danger. He will have difficulty enough in transversing the country with two boys. A third would add to that difficulty. I cannot help that, the Marquis said. I ought long ago to have sent you home, and feel that I have acted wrongly in allowing you to remain so long. I must insist upon your accompanying my sons. 
"'I am sorry to disobey you, Monsieur le Marquis,' Harry said quietly but firmly, "'but from the moment of your arrest I shall be my own master and can dispose of my actions. I am deeply sensible of all your goodness to me, but I cannot yield, for I feel that I may be of some slight use here. There are so many strangers in Paris that there is little fear of my attracting any notice.' a mouse may help a lion monsieur and it may be that though but a boy i may be able to be of service to mademoiselles do not urge him further edouard the marquise said laying a hand on her husband's arm as he was again about to speak harry is brave and thoughtful beyond his years and it will be somewhat of a comfort to me to think that there is some one watching over our girls i thank you harry for your offer and feel sure that you will do all that can possibly be done to protect my girls you will be freer to do so than any of our friends, for they are likely to become involved in our fate, whatever that may be. Marie, you will view our English friend as joint guardian with yourself over your sisters. Consult him should difficulty or danger arise as if he were your brother, and be guided by his advice. And now, girls, come with me to my room. I have much to say to you. I am glad my wife decided as she did, Harry, the Marquis said, putting his hand on his shoulder when his wife and daughters left the room for I, too, shall feel comfort in knowing that you were watching over the girls. Now leave us, for I have much to arrange with Monsieur du Tillet. After a prolonged talk with Monsieur du Tillet, the Marquis sent for Ernest. As soon as he entered, the lad said, Of course, sir, I shall obey your commands, but it seems to be an unworthy part of your son to play, to be flying the country and leaving a stranger here to look after your daughters. He is hardly a stranger, Ernest, the Marquis replied. He has been with us as one of the family for two years, and he risked his life for your sisters. You could not stay here without extreme risk, for if your name is not already included in the warrant for arrest, it speedily will be so, and when they once taste blood, these wolves will hunt down every one of us. He, on the other hand, might proceed openly through the streets without danger. Nevertheless, I would not have kept him if he would have gone, but I have no power of controlling him, and as he chooses to devote himself to us, I thankfully accept his devotion." And now, my son, it may be that after our parting to-morrow we shall not meet again, for God alone knows what fate is in store for us. I have, therefore, some serious advice to give you. If anything happens to me, you will, I know, never forget that you are the head of the family, and that the honour of a great name is in your keeping. But do not try to strive against the inevitable. Adapt yourself to the new circumstances under which you will be placed, and lay aside that pride which has had much to do with the misfortunes which are now befalling us. As to your sisters, Marie is already provided for, that is, if de Guizon is not included in the order for arrest. I have already sent off a message to him to warn him, and, as it has already been arranged between us that while his father will stay and face whatever will come, it is his duty, like yours, to escape the danger which threatens our class, I trust that he will at once endeavour to leave the country, but I imagine that he will stop in Paris until some means are devised for getting your sisters away." As to the others, if you all reach England and settle down there, do not keep up the class distinctions which have prevailed here. Marry your sisters to men who will protect them and make them happy. That these must be gentlemen goes without saying, but that is sufficient. For example, if in future time a gentleman of the rank of our English friend here, of whose character you can entirely approve, ask for the hand of either of your younger sisters, do not refuse it. Remember that such a suit would have the cordial approval of your mother and myself." A look of great surprise passed over Ernest's face. It had seemed to him so much a matter of course that the ladies of his house should marry into noble families that the idea of one of them being given to a gentleman belonging to the professional class was surprising indeed. "'Do you really mean it, sir, that if my friend Harry were some day to ask for Jean's hand you would approve of the match?' "'That is exactly what I do mean, Ernest. In the stormy times in which we are living I could wish no better protector for her.' 
were here frenchmen in the same position of life i own that i might view the matter in a different light but as i have said in england the distinction of classes is much less marked than here and moreover in england there is little fear of such an outbreak of democracy as that which is destroying france a few minutes later monsieur de tillet entered with the clothes which had been prepared for the boys they were such as would be worn by the sons of workmen he himself was attired in a blue blouse and trousers jules was aroused from the couch on which he had for the last hour been asleep and he and ernest retired to dress themselves in their new costume monsieur du tillet accompanying them to assist in their toilette both boys had the greatest repugnance to the change and objected still further when monsieur du tillet insisted it was absolutely necessary that they should cut their hair and smear their faces and hands with dirt my dear monsieur ernest he said it would be worse than useless for you to assume that attire unless at the same time you assumed the bearing and manners appropriate to it in your own dress we might for a short time walk the street without observation but if you sallied out in that blouse with your white hands and your head thrown back and a look of disdain and disgust on your face the first gamin who met you would cry out there is an aristocrat in disguise you must behave as if you were acting in a comedy you are representing a lad of the lower orders you must try to imitate his walk and manner shove your hands deep in your pockets shuffle your feet along carelessly let your head roll about as if it were uneasy on your neck round your shoulders and slouch your head forward as to you jules your role should be impertinence put your cap on the wrong way hold your nose in the air pull your short hair down over your forehead and let some of it spurt out through that hole in your cap to be quite correct you ought to address cheering remarks to every respectable man and woman you meet in the streets but as you know nothing of parisian slang you must hold your tongue see how thoroughly i have got myself up you would take me for an idle out-of-elbows workman wherever you met me i do not like it but as i have to disguise myself i try to do it thoroughly it was however with the feeling of humiliation that the boys presented themselves before the marquis he looked at them scrutinizingly you will do my boys he said gravely i should have passed you in the street without knowing you now come in with me and say good-bye to your mother and sisters the sooner you are out of this house the better for there is no saying at what hour the agents of the canet may present themselves the parting was a sad one indeed but it was over at last and monsieur de tillet hurried the two boys away as soon as their father returned with them god bless you de tillet the marquis said as he embraced his friend should aught happen to us you will i know be a father to them now harry the marquis said when he had mastered the emotion caused by the parting which he felt might be a final one since you have chosen to throw in your lot with ours i will give you a few instructions in the first place i have hidden under a plank beneath my bed a bag containing a thousand crowns it is the middle plank count an even number from each leg and the centre one covers the bag you will find the plank is loose and that you can raise it easily with a knife but wax has been run in and dust swept over it so that there is no fear of its being noticed by any who may pillage the house which they will doubtless do after we are arrested i have already sent an equal sum to louise moulin here is her address but it is possible that you may need money and may be unable to communicate with my daughters at her house at any rate do you keep the bag of money in your charge you had best attire yourself at once in the oldest suit of clothes you have got my daughters will be ready in a few minutes they are already dressed so that they can slip out at the back entrance should we be disturbed before morning i shall place them under your escort for although i hope that all the servants are faithful one can answer for no one in these times i would send them off now but that the sight of females moving through the streets at this time of night would be likely to attract attention on the part of drunken men or of fellows returning from these rascally clubs which are the centre and focus of all the mischief that is going on i can give you no further advice you must be guided by circumstances 
if as i trust the girls can live undisturbed and unsuspected with their mother's old nurse it were best that they should remain there until the troubles are finally over and france comes to her senses again if not i must leave it to you to act for the best it is a great trust to place in the hands of a youth of your age but it is your own choosing and we have every confidence in you i will do my best to deserve it sir harry said quietly but i trust that you and madame la marquise will soon be able to resume your guardianship I cannot believe that although just at present the populace are excited to fury by agitators, they can in cold blood intend to wreak their vengeance upon all the classes above them. I hope you may be right, the Marquis said. But I fear that it is not so. The people are mad so far. All that has been done has in no way mitigated their sufferings, and they gladly follow the preachings of the arch-scoundrels of the Jacobin Club. I fear that before all this is over France will be deluged with blood. And now, when you have changed your clothes, lie down, ready to rise at a moment's notice. Should you hear a tumult, run at once to the long gallery. There my daughters will join you, prepared for flight. Lead them instantly to the back entrance, avoiding, if possible, any observation from the domestics. As these sleep on the floor above, and know nothing of the dangers which threaten us, they will not awake so quickly, and I trust that you will be able to get out without being seen by any of them. In that case, however closely questioned, no one will be able to afford a clue by which you can be traced." When he had changed his clothes, Harry extinguished all the lights in the salon, for the Marquis had long before ordered all the servants to retire to rest. Then he opened the window looking into the street, and took his place close to it. Sleep under the circumstances was impossible. As the hours passed, he thought over the events of the last few days. He was fully aware that the task he had undertaken might be full of danger, but to a healthy and active English lad a spice of danger is by no means a deterrent. He could, of course, have left his employment before the family left their chateau, but after his arrival in Paris it would have been difficult for him to have traversed the country and crossed the frontier, and he thought that the danger which he now ran was not much greater than would have been entailed by such a step. In the next place he was greatly attached to the family of the Marquis, and the orgies of the mob had filled him with such horror and disgust that he would have risked much to save any unfortunate, even a stranger, from their hands. And lastly, he felt the fascination of the wild excitement of the times, and congratulated himself that he should see, and perhaps be an actor in, the astonishing drama which was occupying the attention of the whole civilized world. As he sat there, he arranged his own plans. After seeing his charge in safety, he would take a room in some quiet locality, alleging that he was the clerk of a notary, and would, in the dress of one of that class, or the attire of one of the lower orders, pass his days in the streets, gathering every rumor and watching the course of events. Morning was just breaking when he heard the sound of many feet coming along the street, and looking out saw a crowd of men with torches, headed by two whose red scarves showed them to be officials. As they reached the entrance gate, the men at the head of the procession stopped. Harriet went started away to the long gallery, and as he did so, heard a loud knocking at the door. Scarcely had he reached the gallery when a door at the further end opened, and three figures, the tallest carrying a lamp, appeared. The girls, too, had been keeping watch with their father and mother. They were dressed in the attire of respectable peasant girls. Virginie was weeping loudly, but the elder girls, although their cheeks bore traces of many tears they had shed during the night, restrained them now. When they reached Harry, the lad, without a word, took the lamp from Marie's hand, and led the way along the corridor and down the stairs towards the back of the house. Everything was quiet. The knocking, loud as it was, had not yet aroused the servants, and, drawing the bolt quietly, and blowing out the lamp, Harry led the way into the garden behind the house. Then, for a moment, he paused. There was a sound of axes hewing down the gate which led from the garden into the street behind. "'Quick, mademoiselles,' he said. "'There is no time to lose.' 
He took the key out of the door, and closed and locked it after him. Then, throwing the key among the shrubs, he took Virginie's hand, and led the way rapidly towards the gate, which was fortunately a strong one. "'In here, mademoiselles,' he said to Marie, pointing to some shrubs close to the gate. "'They will rush straight to the house when the gate gives way, and we will slip out quietly.' For nearly five minutes the gate, which was strongly bound with iron, resisted the attack upon it. Then there was a crash, and a number of men with torches, and armed with muskets and pikes, poured in. Virginie was clinging to Marie, who, whispering to her to be calm and brave, pressed the child closely to her, while Jeanne stood quiet and still by the side of Harry, looking through the bushes. Some twenty men entered, and a minute later there was the sound of battering at the door through which the fugitives had sallied out. Now, Harry said, let us be going. Emerging from the shelter, a few steps took them to the gate, and, stepping over the door, which lay prostrate on the ground, they turned into the lane. "'Let us run,' Harry said. "'We must get out of this lane as soon as possible. We are sure to have the mob here before long, and should certainly be questioned.' They hurried down the lane, took the first turning away from the house, and then slackened their pace. Presently they heard a number of footsteps clattering on the pavement, but, fortunately, they reached another turning before the party came up. They turned down and stood up in a doorway till the footsteps had passed, and then resumed their way. "'It is still too early for us to walk through the streets without exciting attention,' Harry said. "'We had better make down to the river and wait there till the town is quite astir.' In ten minutes they reached the river, and Harry found a seat for them at the foot of a pile of timber, where they were partially screened from observation. Hitherto the girls had not spoken a word since they had issued from the house— Virginie was dazed and frightened by the events of the night, and had hurried along almost mechanically holding Marie's hand. Marie's brain was too full to talk. Her thoughts were with her father and mother, and with her absent lover. She wondered that he had not come to her in spite of everything. Perhaps he was already a captive. Perhaps, in obedience to his father's orders, he was in hiding, waiting events. That he could, even had his father commanded him, have left Paris as a fugitive without coming to see her, did not even occur to her as possible. With these thoughts there was mingled a vague wonder at her own position. A few weeks since, petted and cared for as the eldest daughter of one of the noblest families of France, now a fugitive in the streets under the sole care of this English boy, she had, the evening before, silently sided with Ernest. It had seemed to her wrong that he should be sent away, and the assertion of Harry that he intended to stay and watch over her and her sisters seemed at once absurd and presumptuous, but she already felt that she had been wrong in that opinion. The decision and coolness with which he had at once taken the command from the moment he met them in the gallery, and the quickness with which he had seized the only mode of escape, had surprised and dominated her. Her own impulse, when on opening the door she heard the attack that was being made on the gate, was to draw back instantly and return to the side of her parents, and it was due to Harry only that she and her sisters had got safely away. Hitherto, although after the incident of the mad dog she had exchanged her former attitude of absolute indifference to one of cordiality and friendliness, she had regarded him as a boy. Indeed, she had treated and considered him as being very much younger than Ernest, and in some respects she had been justified in doing so. His love of active exercise, and his entire absence of any assumption of age, he was far more boyish than Ernest. But although her thoughts were too busy now to permit her to analyze her feelings, she knew that she had been mistaken, and felt a strange confidence in this lad who had so promptly and coolly assumed the entire command of the party, and had piloted them with such steady nerve through the danger. As for Jeanne, she felt no surprise and but little alarm. Her confidence in her protector was unbounded. Prompt and cool as he was himself, she was ready on the instant to obey his orders, and felt a certain sensation of pride at the manner in which her previous confidence in him was being justified. 
After placing the girls in their shelter, Harry had left them and stood leaning against the parapet of the quay as if carelessly watching the water, but maintaining a vigilant lookout against the approach of danger. The number of passers-by increased rapidly. The washerwomen came down to the boats moored in the stream and began their operation of banging the linen with wooden beaters. Market women came along with baskets. The hum and stir of life everywhere commenced, and Paris was fairly awake. Seeing that it was safe now to proceed, Harry returned to his companions. He had scarcely glanced at them before, and now looked approvingly at their disguises, to which the Marquise had, during the long hours of the night, devoted the most zealous attention. Marie had been made to look much older than she was. A few dark lines, carefully traced on her forehead, at the corners of her eyes and mouth, had added many years to her appearance, and she could have passed, except to the closest observer, as the mother of Virginie, whose dress was calculated to make her look even younger than she was. The hands and faces of all three had been slightly tinged with brown to give them a sunburnt aspect in accordance with their peasant dresses, and so complete was the transformation that Harry could scarcely suppress a start of surprise as he looked at the group. "'It would be safe now, mademoiselle,' he said to Marie, "'for us to proceed. There are plenty of people about in the streets, but as the news has no doubt already been spread that the daughters of the Marquis de Saint-Claude had left the house before those charged with their father's arrest arrived, it will be better for you not to keep together.' I would suggest that you should walk on with Virginie. I will follow with Jean a hundred yards behind, so that I can keep you in sight, and will come up if anyone should accost you. Marie at once rose, and taking the child's hand, set out. They had to traverse the greater part of Paris to reach their destination. It was a trial for Marie, who had never before been in the streets of Paris except with her mother and closely followed by two domestics, and even then only through the quiet streets of a fashionable quarter. However, she went steadily forward, tightly holding Virginie's hand, and trying to walk as if accustomed to them in the thick, heavy shoes which felt so strangely different to those which she was in the habit of wearing. From time to time she addressed an encouraging word to Virginie, as she felt her shrink as they approached groups of men lounging outside the wine-shops, for there was but little work done in Paris, and the men of the lower class spent their time in idleness, in discussions of the events of the day, or in joining the mobs, which, under one pretext or another, kept the streets in an uproar. Fortunately, Marie knew the way perfectly, and there was no occasion for her to ask for directions, for she had frequently driven with her mother to visit Louise Moulin. The latter occupied the upper floor of a house in a quiet quarter near the fortifications in the northwestern part of the town. A message had been sent to her the night before, and she was on the lookout for her visitors. But she did not recognize them, and she uttered a cry of surprise as Marie and Virginie entered the room. "'Is it you, mademoiselle?' she exclaimed in great surprise. "'And you, my little angel? My eyes must be getting old, indeed, that I did not recognize you. But you are finely disguised. But where is mademoiselle Jeanne?' "'She will be here in a moment, Louise. She is just behind. But you must not call me mademoiselle.' You must remember that we are your nieces, Marie and Jeanne, and that you are Aunt Louise Moulin, whom we have come to stay with. I shall remember in time, the old woman said. I have been talking about you to my neighbors for the last week, of how your good father and mother have died, and how you were going to journey to Paris under the charge of a neighbor, who was bringing a wagon-load of wine from Burgundy, and how you were going to look after me and help me in the house since I am getting old and infirm, and the young ones were to stop with me till they were old enough to go out to service. Ah, here is Mademoiselle Jeanne. "'Here is John,' Marie corrected. "'Thank God we have all got here safely. "'This, Louise, is a young English gentleman "'who is going to remain in Paris at present, "'and to whom we are indebted for having got us safely here.' "'And your mother,' Louise Moulin exclaimed, "'the darling lamb I nursed. "'What of her and your father? "'I fear, from the message I got last night, "'that some danger threatens them.' 
They have, I fear, been arrested by the sans-culotte, Marie said mournfully, as she burst into tears, feeling, now that the strain was over, the natural reaction after her efforts to be calm. For her mother's sake she had held up to the last, and had tried to make the parting as easy as possible. "'The wretches!' the old woman said, stamping her foot. "'Old as I am, I feel that I could tear them to pieces. But there I am, chattering away, and you must be faint with hunger. I have a nice soup ready on the fire. A plate of that will do good to you all. And you too, monsieur, you will join us, I hope.' Harry was nothing loth, for his appetite was always a healthy one. When he had finished, he said, "'Madame Moulin, I have been thinking that it would be an advantage if you would take a lodging for me. If you would say that a youth whose friends are known to you has arrived from Dijon to make his way in Paris, and they have asked you to seek a lodging for him, it will seem less strange than if I went by myself. I should like it to be near, so that you can come to me quickly should anything out of the way occur. I should like to look in sometimes, to see that all is well.' You could mention to your neighbors that I travelled up with the same wagon with your nieces. I will do that willingly, the old woman said. But first, my dears, you must have some rest. Come in here. And she led the way to the next room. There is a bed for you, Mademoiselle Marie, and one for the two young ones. The room is not like what you are accustomed to, but I dared not buy finer things, though I had plenty of money from your mother to have furnished the rooms like a palace. But you see, it would have seemed strange to my neighbors. But at least everything is clean and sweet. Leaving the girls, who were worn out with weariness and anxiety, to sleep, she rejoined Harry. "'Now, monsieur, I will do your business. It is a comfort to me to feel that someone will be near of whom I can ask advice, for it is a terrible responsibility for an old woman in such dreadful times as these, when it seems to me that everyone has gone mad at once. What sort of a chamber do you want?' "'Quite a small one,' Harry answered. "'Just such a chamber as a young clerk on the lookout for employment, and with his pocket very slenderly lined, would desire.' "'I know just such a one,' the old woman said. "'It is a house a few doors away, and has been tenanted by a friend of mine, a young workwoman, who was married four days ago. It is a quiet place, and the people keep to themselves, and do not trouble about their neighbors' affairs.' "'That will just suit me,' Harry said. "'I suppose there is no porter below, so that I can go in or out without being noticed.' "'Oh, we have no porters in this quarter, and you can go in and out as you like.' Half an hour later the matter was settled, and Harry was installed in his apartment, which was a little room scantily furnished, at the top of the house, the window looking into the street in front. End of chapter 5 Recording by Jen Raimundo